Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. We've got a great show for you this week. We're going to start things off with a talk with Robert Sanchez, a senior staff writer at 5280 Magazine in Denver. Then we're going to talk to Bradford Pearson, a managing editor at Southwest, the magazine, who recently had a really interesting piece in Philadelphia Magazine. And finally, we've got a required reading from Zach Lemon, one of my students at Ashland University, who recently read Tom Juneau's classic, The Rapist Says He's Sorry. Before we get started, though, I wanted to let you know that we're in the process of moving all of our older podcasts over to SoundCloud. What this means is you'll be able to go over to our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com, and listen to all of the podcasts we've done on that site. This includes several episodes that we've had to take down recently. Everything should be back online at our site by the end of the year. We've also included a lot of links to stories some of our featured guests have written since they've been on the show. There's a lot of great stuff on the site, so head on over to gangrythepodcast.com and check it out. Now, on with the show. Robert Sanchez is a senior staff writer for 5280 Magazine in Denver. In 2014, he was named the City and Regional Magazine Association's Writer of the Year and also won the award that year for Best Profile. That story is titled The Rise and Fall of Terrence Roberts, which we'll talk with him about. Robert is a three-time finalist for the award he just won in 2014 and is also a three-time finalist for the prestigious Livingston Awards for Young Journalists. His work has been anthologized twice in Best American Sports Writing and has also been included in Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists, and in the Missouri Anthology of Narrative Journalism. Robert also contributes features to ESPN the Magazine and has been published in Esquire and Men's Health. He's also worked for the Associated Press, the Denver Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Rocky Mountain News. As usual, we've linked to many of Robert's stories on our website. That's at gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really happy for you to join us here, and I uh, uh, was hoping that we could start off by talking about a story that actually ran um, quite some time ago. Well, not quite a, a long time ago, but back in January of 2014. Uh, and that story is The Rise and Fall of Terrence Roberts, uh, it won the, the 2015 City and Regional Magazine Award for Profile Writing, uh, and I was hoping you could maybe talk about that story just in general, and then we can talk a little bit more about the reporting and what went into it. Uh, yeah, uh, several, gosh, it, it, it seems so long ago, but uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, Terrence Roberts was this really, um, I guess, not even up and coming. He was the kind of anti gang advocate in this part of uh, Denver called Park Hill, which had been really uh, decimated by gang violence in the, the 80s and 90s. And Terrence had been part of that as a member of the Blood Street Gang. And he had been 
shot, I think around 1993, uh, was almost killed, served some time in, in different prisons, and then came out uh, really a changed man. He, he said he was just completely tired of carrying Park Hill on his back. He wanted to get away from the gang life uh, by changing other kids so that they wouldn't have to walk essentially in, in the footsteps uh, that he walked while he was in, in gang life. So what he did was he tra- started this organization called the Prodigal Son Initiative. And essentially he just started with like after school programs and, and just kind of everything you can imagine, kind of a small potatoes organization going through. But eventually uh, people started taking him very, very seriously. He got a foothold in the neighborhood and he seemed to really be changing some kids' lives. And he expanded into uh, helping uh, another organization he, 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 uh, with some property across the street from his office, and he built, uh, it was a basketball court, I think, a little soccer field kind of thing, playground, all that stuff, and he was still doing the outreach within the community. He got very close with the, the governor. Uh, I think he had met President Obama a couple times. Uh, he knew the mayor, and everybody was kind of helping him figure out how to be this real kind of game changer within this neighborhood. And and really, it seemed to be doing some good. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Park Hill had this, uh, has this like strip mall area, or it used to be called the Holly, and that was burned down by the Crip Street Gang several years before, which was kind of the impetus uh, for uh, Terrence to come out and say, hey, this isn't right this isn't good what we're doing to our communities we need to change and and it was working but uh kind of fast forward a little bit he ends up um he ends up he ends up kind of working both sides of the fence he was talking to police about some things that were going on in the neighborhood although he says he wasn't a quote-unquote snitch the bloods in the neighborhood thought he was uh he helped the, the there was kind of all this this stuff going on in the background, but the the bottom line is the blood streaking. The very active member said, "We're sick and tired of Terrence Roberts. We think he's a snitch. We don't think he's in 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 the neighborhood for the right reasons." And they tried to push him out. And this guy named uh, Hassan Jones, who went by the nickname of Munch, um, there was this kind of back and forth of of Diddy or Bidney. But uh, Terrence had said that Munch had tried to attack him on these basketball courts or near the basketball courts that he, uh, that Terrence helped create and Terrence, uh, had an illegal gun on him and Terrence shot, uh, Hassan. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads up to, uh, the present day. But as I was reporting my story, I wasn't reporting it from the, the shooting standpoint. I was in Terrence's life months before that, looking to do a story on Park Hill life and gangs, and it just so happened that the guy I was talking to a lot happened to be involved in this very, very public shooting. Right, that's what, I, parents, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because that's the way I read it, and I wanted to make sure I read that accurately. I mean, it's really the only way to read it now that I think back about it. But so yeah. you had already been in contact with him um, months before uh, that, that shooting. Is that is that right? Yeah, and it's kind of weird. Um so uh, uh, Mike Sager, the awesome writer, is a close friend of mine, and I had talked with Sager a little bit about wanting to do a story on gangs and things like that, and, and obviously Mike had done those kind of stories in the past, and 
uh, Sager knew uh, Freeway Rick Ross, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, drug kingpin, from a previous story, and Freeway Rick apparently had met Terrence in Denver and it said, wow, you wouldn't believe what's going on in Park Hill, uh, in this Park Hill neighborhood in Denver. Sager told me about it, said, you need to talk to Freeway Rick. Freeway Rick put me in touch with Terrence. Yeah, that's that's a great uh, that's a great way to, to find out about a story, isn't it? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So so I, I was able to get in with Terrence, and, and I had met with Terrence several times, and I, I say that in the story, and he takes me around the, this like little kind of block, block and a half area, and um, I use that in parts of my story. But um, you know, I, I I obviously didn't expect this to happen, but but Terrence was kind of my Sherpa into the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and he had gotten a lot of people to trust me. But then the shooting happened, right. and then it became very very quickly obvious to me that oh wow, you know, this is the story. Can you talk about what happened, um, even with, with the magazine, in terms of, like, what was your, like, thinking for uh, did how quickly you thought you would have a story initially, and then and then how did all those plans change once the shooting happened? Um, can, you, can you talk about, like, that? Yeah, sure. Um, it, was, uh, it was kind of fortunate the way that everything had come, to, together for, uh, come together for me because... When we were going through this, this this story was just kind of out there. I was just gathering mm-hmm. thread on it, and we didn't have any kind of run date. All I knew is I wanted to write something about gang life for for the year. You know, I write several stories a year for fifty two eighty, and I just thought a gang story, gang life, something in 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 Denver having to do with that was something I really wanted to do. It was something I wanted to do for a while. Uh, so basically what it was, was once the shooting happened, um, I didn't know, I didn't know what Terrence would do. Right. So Mm -hmm. I tried to call his phone. His phone had been obviously taken away from him. And then when he got out, uh, uh, on bail, he got rid of his phone. So I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, there was, you know, this opportunity to tell this story. And I don't know if it's going to be there. I can't find him. I can't get in touch with him because he had gone into hiding. And then one day he called me from another phone. Mm-hmm. And then everything, I said, hey, I want to do this story. And he said, I hoped you would say that. So um, from there, it was just going to my, my you know great editor, Jeff Van Dyke, talking about it. And then it was, okay, let's, let's see where this goes. And mm-hmm. then we, we were able to put it on, um, on the docket for, what, 2014. Mm-hmm. Because you had, I think, started reporting maybe in like early spring of 2013. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. And it was just like I said, just gathering string, kind of figuring things out because there there's so many moving parts, obviously, within the game world. And I wanted to make sure that I picked the right one because I didn't want to do a story that everybody else had done before, whether it was a story that had been done in Denver before or just nationally. Mm-hmm. So I was really, really being choosy about you know, where I was looking and who I was talking to. And then when this happened, it was just kind of slap you in the face. Obvious. I had to do right. something on this. Um, how much did you know about, about gang, gang life, uh, gangs in Denver? Like, I don't even, when I hear Denver, I do not think of gangs. Um, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I grew up in, uh, Colorado, just South of Denver, uh, since, uh, my family moved here from Massachusetts in like 1979, so I was two years old. 
And so we had this thing called the Summer of Violence, where just the street gang wars just completely escalated. Lots of people were shot. Lots of people were killed. There was a little kid who was shot over at the zoo by a stray bullet and just all this stuff happening. And, and it was kind of a scary time. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would get all paranoid about, oh, are you, are, are you going to Denver? Yeah, okay, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. And you can't go over here and, and, you know, get out of these neighborhoods at a certain time. So I had grown up with a decent amount of knowledge, I guess, kind of, you know, a, a kid's fear of, oh, my gosh, you know, these, these big bad gangs. But it was it was very much a real thing. And, and Terrence was a part of that kind of that, that second wave, but like the first real wave of massive violence mm-hmm. within the city between the, the Bloods and the Crips. The, the Bloods in, in Park Hill are kind of in between two warring factions of Crips. So you have the Crips fighting the Crips, but then you have one set of uh, one set of Crips also fighting the Bloods, while the other set of Crips is also fighting the Bloods. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I, I had gone in with a lot of that kind of knowledge, just, you know, in general following news for the past two decades plus within Denver. Uh, and in, in my past life, I was also a, a writer for the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. So mm-hmm. um, I had that background. But then going into it, it was, it was even eye-opening from there because, you know, things had calmed down quite a bit, but there was still kind of that underlying fire that was always burning. It was always kind of simmering, and there was always this uneasiness of, okay, nothing's exploded yet, but what happens when something explodes? Mm-hmm. And, and after Terrence's arrest, I mean, in, in the time since the arrest and, and you know, up to, to his trial, which just ended uh, a little while ago, uh, there have been some bad things that have happened in that neighborhood all over again. It's mm. it's it's been really really sad to witness. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that his trial just ended. Can you can you talk about uh, uh, what happened in that trial? Yeah, he was uh, uh, jury found him not guilty, so uh, he's not going to go to prison. And uh, it was it was a fairly short trial. The jury was out for a little while, but it was um, I don't know. It, it it was pretty simple. It, it, it was in and out. It, it took a long time to get to trial, but in the end, you know, that's what ended up happening. And, and I think Terrence now has a, like a documentary film crew or some, something like that following, following him around off of, you know, my story. And uh, so I'm sure they're going to get, this is like just yet another chapter in, in Terrence's life. I, I don't know what he's going to do mm-hmm. now if he's going to end up back in Park Hill uh, trying to do what he was doing before, if he has to kind of cool off for several more years, I, I just don't know. But, you know, as of now, he doesn't have this hanging over his head anymore. Right. Hey, have you thought about reaching back out to him and maybe doing, like, a follow-up or anything like that? Uh, we've talked. I haven't talked to him since uh, since his acquittal. But, uh, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely be open to it. Uh, it'd probably be a shorter story, but I'd really kind of want to see where he is in his life and, and find out what the, you know, what the compelling story, because I, I just wouldn't want to do a story for story's sake, but right. obviously I think there's there's something there. I, I just don't know, again, exactly what it would be or, you know, when I'd want to do it. Right. When you were reporting that story, um, you were obviously talking to um, a lot of former gang members uh, and and maybe even some current gang members. Uh, I can't 
recall off the top of my head. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that? I mean, is that a difficult type of interview, or is it just in, like any other interview? I'm asking this as somebody who sits in the middle of, of three cornfields uh, in Ohio and <laughs> not near any major city. I mean, what's what's that like in terms of finding people who who can talk and who will talk to you? Um, you know the. When I was initially reporting on it, it was all current gang members mm-hmm. and, you know, talking to them in their cars or on the phone and, and basically getting the buy-in because, you know, I'm I'm a white male and, and a lot of the police are white males. Mm-hmm. And I think there was definitely kind of an apprehension on their part, which I completely understood. So when I sat down with those folks, I'd say, hey, you know, I'm not here to, you know, do something terrible to your community. I just kind of want to understand how you live and why you've chosen this path in your life and where this neighborhood's going. Uh, But after the shooting, people within the neighborhood, I I think, saw me more as um, with parents, just because when I was walking around the neighborhood, a lot of times I had parents with me, you know, showing me different buildings and what was this and what was that. Like I said, he was kind of my Sherpa. Mm -hmm. So after the shooting, I think there was this kind of distrust of, okay, this guy knew Terrence and was with him, and that's how he got in contact with me. So he must be with Terrence, which, you know, obviously I'm just a a journalist there trying to do a story. But um, once once the shooting happened, then it was just, um, for me, a matter of looking through old newspaper clips and because, you know, Terrence had popped up in those as, as a kid because he was involved in shootings and things like that. And, and when he went to go prison the first time, uh, I was able to find friends through there. And then also just talking to Terrence saying, OK, who were some of your closest friends? And uh, the the interesting thing for me was seeing just talking to the, like the old gangsters about how even everything after everything they had gone through with the summer of violence and and just all the the murder and destruction that they kind of helped facilitate, they thought that the people, the gang members today, were just completely crazy and that they didn't get it and they didn't get what the Bloods were all about in Park Hill and that it was like they had taken offense to it. I, I'd heard from multiple guys who said there are kids from Wyoming who come down to Park Hill who are Bloods and they don't even know what the neighborhood stands for. They couldn't even tell you the streets. Right. So, yeah, it, it was fascinating for me as, you know, this, this, you know, kid from the suburbs who, you know, grew up, and I, I still live in the same town where I grew up, and, uh, you know, raising my family down here and be able to, to talk to current gang members about what life is like, but then also go into that history of what I had read about as a kid. And it was, it was absolutely fascinating. And then hearing some of the, the old stories about Terrence, about how, you know, almost insane he was, about just death. He didn't mm-hmm. care if he died. He didn't care if he killed another person. One of his friends, there's a small anecdote in the in, in my Terrence Roberts story where a friend is talking about how, you know, this these, these Crips gang members are following his bus on the way back from school, and the kid gets off the bus, and they all try to jump this guy, and all of a sudden there are these pops, and the guy who's being attacked thinks that the Crips are now shooting at him, and he turns around, and Terrence is running up the alleyway with a gun, firing at all these crits mm-hmm. and so like to hear some of that stuff it just really made it just very vivid right. and, and I'm you know obviously very thankful to the people who talked to me because I think they gave me that kind of unvarnished 
view of who Terrence was and who Terrence is and just that whole backstory. It made the story, I think, a lot better because of those anecdotes and those very kind of true statements that these people said. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about like um, what what you're looking for when you're looking for stories to write. You write for not just 5280. Um, but you, you've also written, you write for ESPN the magazine or ESPN.com, uh, and you've written for Esquire and, and some other publications. And, and like, as I'm looking through a lot of your stories, it seems like they're all very different. Um, you know, you have a story on a, a, a prodigy swimmer. Uh, uh, you have a story on a gang member who had this dramatic rise and fall. Um, you have a story on the how, the real estate boom in, in Denver. Uh, so they're all very, very different types of stories, but they're all done in a narrative way. What? How, how do you decide what, what you want to write a story about? I mean, it's kind of a cheap answer, but I'm just looking for a good story. You know, <laughs> I want a compelling, compelling character or a compelling idea. There's something that's going to make people want to dig into a story. And, you know, selfishly and... and I, I don't even think this is like a dirty little secret among journalists. We, we want to write about what we enjoy, you know, because that makes me more interested. That mm-hmm. makes me want to dig even harder into a story and understand characters even more and, and understand just kind of all the undercurrents running below. And that's that, when I was at the, so my, my previous experience outside of magazines, I, I worked for the Associated Press, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and then, like I said, the Rocky and then the Denver Post, and, you know, with, with in, in all those instances, I really loved, um, you know, it, you have to specialize in, in, in some ways, and you get your beat and stuff, but I was never happier than when I was doing, like, general assignment stuff, mm-hmm. where there's just that thrill of, you know, from day to day, you meet, you meet somebody who's a, you know, multi-millionaire businesswoman, and then you go and you hang out on the streets with a homeless guy for two days. And that was kind of like that richness of life that I just love. That's, that's the thing that really gets me going. It was never a beat. And, and I think people see me with, you know, some of the stories I've done for 5280, but then also obviously the stuff I've done for ESPN, the magazine, that people say, oh, you're kind of a sports guy or whatever. But, you know, even those sports stories aren't necessarily mm-hmm. about the sport. They're about something else and i i just love life i i I just love that kind of that play of people and ideas and and events and you know a lot of times i I do stories on you know people who have faced some kind of extraordinary thing in their life but um i don't know i just think i I just like compelling life tales did did you know um early on when you started writing for newspapers that you eventually wanted to end up doing magazine work or was that something that happened um, unexpectedly or as a result of the sometimes tumultuous newspaper industry? Uh, when did you kind of realize you wanted to make that move? When, when I was, uh, I, I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism and uh, when I was there, uh, I had wanted to be like a White House correspondent. That was my goal. And I, you know, graduating out of Mizzou, I went to the AT in Little Rock, Arkansas, and did, like, a lot of statewide stuff. Mm -hmm. And my mind was never on, like, big narrative things. That's why, you know, Wright and Justin and Seth and and Tony Rehagen all graduated, like, right behind me. And they had, like, this, this, like, click of great, uh, 
just these great like young writers who wanted to learn more. And I was never in that group because I always thought I was just going to be like the newspaper reporter. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I left the AP pretty early. And when I went to Philadelphia, I was teamed up with this really great editor named uh, Joanne McLaughlin. And uh, I covered uh, Montgomery County, some GA stuff. And then I was their uh, county courts and county government writer for a while before I left and, and went to the Rocky Mountain News. And, and she really had me thinking more about like what a story was, mm-hmm. what, a, what a real, true, down-to-earth story was, and about how it didn't need to be covered in this very kind of newspapery, uh, in, you know, inverted pyramid kind of way. And that got me thinking more. And then at the Rocky, um, you know, I, I, I had some pretty good editors over there who, who allowed me to do some longer stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that's what got me thinking more uh, along the lines of, gosh, I really like this, like, narrative journalism kind of thing. And um, so, you know, when I went over the, the post, we had had some uh, financial problems, as, you know, has happened to most major newspapers in America. And I, uh, I, I remember I was in the office and I called my wife. I said, I, I'm sick of this up and down thing. I just want to do good journalism. And she said, okay, do what you need to do. And so I, uh, I, I, I called some folks over at 5280 and I got hired. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was fairly early in my professional career when I decided that I wanted to write long mm-hmm. uh, narrative stories. But it wasn't until way, way later, maybe in my late 20s, when I started thinking, hey, maybe I could do magazine stuff. But that's always freaky, I think, for any newspaper writer, because you're used to, you know, a a, a 33 to a 50-inch story is huge. Right, right. (laughs) And and that is so frightening. And, And that was, I remember when I came in for my interview, one of the editors had asked me, he said, um, so have you written a magazine story before? I was like, yeah. He said, what? I said, well, I, I did a story for Spirit Magazine, you know, one of the in-flight airline magazines. And he laughed at me. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> you know, why are you laughing at me? That's a magazine. And he's like, how long was that story? And I said, oh, like 1,500, 2,000 words. He said, that's like your first two sections <laughs> in a magazine story. Right. And that was one of those moments where it was like, whoa, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> and, you know, those first stories or always kind of a, not a grind, but like mentally, it's just on you the whole time, mm-hmm. where you're saying, this is a magazine story, this is a magazine story, this is a magazine story, and um, that becomes kind of overwhelming. So it, it takes a while, you know, if there's anyone out there who's, who's you know, a newspaper writer thinking about magazines, just realize it's, it's a process, and everything will be fine, but you got to go through this process of basically being really, really freaked out of your mind, about doing something really, really, really long, and then just being able to, you know, a couple of years later, sit down and just do it and not not be freaked out about that challenge. I know um, you recently, I think this uh, this month, um, you had a story in, in 5280, uh, the two sides of Denver's real, Denver's real estate boom. Um, and it's a type of story that I think newspapers often try to do, and sometimes they do that well, uh, and that's to tell the story of real estate and what's going on. Um, uh, in a community, um, but you did it in a really interesting way in that you kind of followed like three people who were integral or who were moving parts um, 
you know, people who are affected by or are affecting that, that real estate boom. Can you talk about how you, how you came up with that idea for that story? Yeah, I was, uh, uh, usually most of the time I come up with my own stories, but, uh, Jeff Van Dyke, my, my direct editor at 5280, we were talking about some potential stories and, and, uh, he sent something over to me in, in, in an email on, on some, some statistic or something. And, and it was about Denver housing and how everything was out of control. And he said, what do you think about something like this? And, and I thought about it and I, I said, wow, that's kind of, it's exciting because I'm so glad that you brought up the newspaper side of it because that's the first thing that hit me was, okay, how do I tell this story in a way that a newspaper wouldn't tell it? Mm-hmm. And that in a lot of ways, it was so exciting. And I told Jeff this too, that as I was reporting it, I felt like back to my old newspaper days because I was literally just walking the street trying to find people to talk to and and find compelling characters. And, and I did that for several weeks before I found, uh, you know, like my two overarching characters. And that was just so much fun to just be like right out there, pounding the pavement, doing, doing my thing like that. But then, um, you know, it, it quickly got down to, okay, this is, this is a magazine story. This is smart. I have to be engaging with this. I have to find these really compelling mm-hmm. people to wrap this story around. And I, you know, I hope readers feel like I did. I, I, I think I did. Um, you know, when I reread the story a couple of years from now, maybe I'll say, oh, gosh, that was a missed opportunity. But right now I feel I feel really good about it because I think I put a human face on on the real estate issues in Denver. And, and I don't know. It, it was a fun thing for me to do. Right. So how did you find da- uh, David Pierre Bell, who is uh, the person who is desperately looking for affordable an affordable apartment? Um, in a world where they <laughs> almost just don't exist. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I I went to a lot of different organizations. I was just trying desperately to find somebody, and I was I was getting kind of panicked because I, I had we had had we'd set kind of a deadline of of when we wanted this thing to run, and I was going around going around, and I just hadn't found the right person with the right story, and. I, I met this one woman who was in a pretty bad situation. Her son had gone to one of the local colleges, and that a, a light kind of went off in my head, and I said, well, wait a minute. Okay, maybe maybe the colleges would be the place to look. So I went over to what's called the Auraria campus in downtown Denver. There are three schools uh, on the campus, and I went over to the community college because I figured that that might be my best place to find somebody who was kind of in, in dire straits, who was trying to make their life better. I went in just completely cold, and I started talking to some people, and then they put me in touch with some other people. This all happened in one day. And uh, this one lady said, oh, I'm going to be back in the office pretty soon. Can you come by? So I left, went, got a drink, and came back. And uh, she said, you need to stand over in the doorway right over there, a guy's going to come through. I can't introduce you because I, I, I can't tell you his conditions, but he'll want to talk to you. And sure enough, about 10 minutes later, I was standing in the doorway. David walked up. I introduced myself. And, you know, later David told me once we really got to know each other, he said, I'm looking at this this guy saying, you know, what are you doing here? You know, I'm not telling my story to you, but what I did was I hung with him a lot mm-hmm. and I showed him that I was really truly vested in his story and what he was going through to the point where, you know, he would text me at night from his car saying, 
I don't know how much longer I can do this. Mm-hmm. And that was when I really knew that, you know, we had kind of a, a trust, kind of a bond between each other so that I could go back to him and say, look, you know, can I go with you on one of these trips to try to find an apartment? And I, and I know that something's probably not going to turn up, but can, can we just go? You know, can I go with you as you do this? Mm-hmm. And he let me do it. And, you know, then when I went home with him, uh, you know, at the end of the story, it's when kind of I have the big reveal. So I guess it's a spoiler alert, but um, he's David is homeless and he lives in his car. And so David took me out there and, uh, you know, the whole time, I think as a journalist, you're like, okay, this is when I find out he's not really living in a car. This is, you know, this is all going to be fake and I'll realize I was used and how stupid was I and what signs did I miss? And the whole time my heart's just pumping because I'm like, okay, am I really going to see a car here? And sure enough, we pull up and, you know, David, you know, we hang out outside his car and he goes in his car and, um, you know, and then I watched him fall asleep and I told him I'd be back early in the morning and, um, he said, okay. And I left and like, that's when it, I don't know that's when it got like really, really real mm-hmm. in my mind. And for some reason I was able to have like this partition in my mind, but on the whole way home, I cried. Mm-hmm. I just cried because like someone shouldn't have to live that way. Right. You know? right. Well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to talk talk with me here on Gangry the Podcast. It's been great uh, talking with you for sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We've been talking with Robert Sanchez, a senior staff writer at 5280 Magazine in Denver. Robert was named the City and Regional Magazine Association's Writer of the Year in 2014. We've linked to several of his stories on our website, which you can find at www.gangrythepodcast.com. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll talk with Bradford Pearson about his story, My Kidnappers. This is Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash jdm. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Our next guest is Bradford Pearson. Bradford is a managing editor at Southwest, the magazine. In September, he published his story, My Kidnappers, in Philadelphia magazine. The story is about a time when Bradford was in college and he was robbed and kidnapped at gunpoint. In the piece, he actually tracks down the men who did this to him. 
Bradford has also been an editor at D Magazine in Dallas. We've linked to My Kidnappers, which has the headline, What Happened After My Kidnapping on the Web, at gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Bradford. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Let's start by uh, talking about your story, which ran in uh, Philadelphia uh, Magazine. Uh, online, it is called uh, "What Happened After My Kidnapping." It obviously had a different a different headline uh, in the in the print magazine. I think it was "My Kidnappers" um, yeah. in in the September uh, 2015 issue. Um, can you talk about the story itself, uh, kind of what it's about, and and then maybe we can talk about how 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 the whole thing came about? Sure. Basically, what happened was in March of 2006. I walked off my college campus, was robbed, and then thrown in the back of a car and kidnapped. Uh, And the story kind of goes from there. There's a lot about, in the story, there's a lot about that first night. But then it also talks about what happened in the years after that. To me, emotionally, uh, mentally, uh, and me moving all of my life. And then it eventually sweeps back to me reaching out to two of the three men who kidnapped me. They had eventually been caught. And uh, me going out to a, a prison in northeast Pennsylvania, meeting with them over the course of a couple of days, and really trying to find out a lot about their lives, both before the kidnapping and what life had been like for the past nine years for them uh, in a penitentiary, whereas I had spent the last nine years working through this on my own, but I'd also had the luxury of not being incarcerated for that time. So it's a little bit about my path to, to recovery, but it's also a lot about their lives and, and what led them to that night in March of 2006 and what their lives have been like since then. When you were, when you were in college, um, were you studying journalism or something, or something like that? Uh, no, I actually studied international relations. And then my junior year, um, I was on the rowing team uh, in college. That's actually why I attended the college that I did at St. Joseph's. And I got injured, and I just knew that the injury, I wasn't going to be able to keep up, and I wasn't going to be able to come back. So I had stopped. Actually, I'm sorry, that was my sophomore year. And then the next year, I thought newspapers sound kind of fun, so I started covering sports for the school newspaper. And then I eventually picked up an English minor, but at the time, St. Joe's didn't have a dedicated journalism degree. So I just studied international relations and history and then minored in English with a concentration in uh, in writing. I, I asked that question because I'm curious, you know, after, you know, how long after this happened to you, did you start thinking that this was something you might want to write about someday? Uh, I would say 12 hours. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, I guess I got home from the police station really late the next night, or the, excuse me, so it happened at about 10 o'clock that night, then after they kidnapped me, and I went to the police later, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever, I got back, you know, talked to my parents, talked to my roommates, all the requisite, something terrible just happened to me, calls, and then uh, the next day, everything started spreading on campus that this had happened, and I actually had an assignment due in the next couple weeks for my literary journalism class that was supposed to be a reported feature that, you know, I guess 
in a, a typical college literary journalism class. I think we were supposed to write it like try to write like Tom Wolfe or something. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, just talked to the professor and said, "Hey, I think I should just write about this night instead." And so the next day, I just wrote down everything I could remember from the night, uh, hand wrote it. Just as as soon as I put pen to paper, I probably spent an hour just trying to write everything that I could possibly remember, and then eventually pieced something together over the next couple of days. And that those notes and that initial draft are, if you look at my story, it's a much more condensed version of it in the Philadelphia, uh, the Philadelphia story. But it's based entirely on the fact that, for some reason, uh, I decided to write down all of these notes, you know, the next day. Um, and I'm really thankful that I did. I, I mean, as a 21-year-old, I was not usually very responsible from a uh, academic or professional standpoint. So the fact that I even <laughs> the fact that I even did that, uh, I'm very thankful for my 21-year-old self having done that. Yeah, I was, that's. I remember when I'm reading, especially the scene in which in which you are kidnapped um, and even like the dialogue that happens um, you know when you're being driven around in the car mm-hmm. I, I'm constantly thinking how does he how does he remember this and I guess that's how because you you wrote it all down that next day yeah that was um, you know that that's a question that a lot of people have and I, I'm again I'm really lucky that I did that and it's not to pat myself on the back like I said like that wasn't usually my style of uh, academia if you will um, so I um, yeah and, and it made the story much better now and again every, so every couple of years I would take that draft and look at it a little bit and tweak it a little bit and try to rewrite it and and and, and try to make it better uh, and I look back at you know first drafts of when I was 21, you know, nine years ago or whatever, and I just think about, I just look at it, and it's just, you know, it's the writing of a 21-year-old. It's so overwritten, and it's, you know, trying to make connections where there aren't connections, and trying to use all kinds of metaphors and things. So that, what you see now is a more stripped out, bare-bones version of, of what happened. Mm-hmm. So. When, um, when did you actually decide, okay, I'm ready I'm going to send this out into the world and, and maybe see if I can get it published somewhere. Well, that was, I want to say maybe, maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago, I started thinking that there's something else here, but it needs more than what I have right now. Cause at that point it was maybe a 5,000 word essay just about that night, which, you know, to people other than me, isn't really that interesting. Like mm-hmm. you don't learn anything about me. I didn't, you know, you don't learn anything about the guys. You don't learn anything, really. It's it's this somewhat strange night, and yeah, it was terrible. But you know, nobody else could learn anything from it. So maybe two years ago, I started thinking about ways to increase it and make it better. And I'd always, somewhere in the back of my mind, knew that I wanted to try to talk to um, Jerry and Tyree and Morty. And I basically happened. I started thinking about it, and I started coming up with places that I thought would be good for it. And then I was at the, um, the City and Regional Magazine Association Conference in 2014, and I was introduced to Tom McGrath, who was my editor on the story at Philly Mag. He liked it. Uh, he liked the idea, provided that, of course, I could uh, talk to Jerry and Tyree or Morty. And uh, then we just went from there. And that, that process actually took a really long time. 
getting into the prison uh, because there's usual, uh, as there should be, there's usual victim mediation guidelines that are set up uh, to protect victims in these situations, which I asked the state if I could bypass. So that took a long, that took a long time. And there's uh, one particular woman uh, at the state of Pennsylvania who is by far the most helpful public servant that I've ever worked with. And um, my wife's a public employee, so. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, and that that really helped, and that that got the ball moving. And once I, you know, it happens very early on in the story. But I was writing letters to them, and then once they agreed to meet with me, I immediately started looking at flights to get up to uh, Pennsylvania as soon as I could. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, I, th- I think kind of towards the end of the story that Morty is one of the the three who. You did not talk to, and you mentioned right. it's, almost, it's like a, a really brief parenthetical that that you didn't because he was already out of prison. Can you talk about why that, that made a difference? Uh, yeah, and actually, that story has been complicated by the fact that he's now back in prison. <laughs> so um, that's something that I'm trying to work with right now and mm-hmm. figure out if there's a way that the story can or should continue. Um, talking to Morty. I think the way that I ended up deciding just to talk to to Jerry and Tyree was, frankly, reasons reasons of space. There's only so many things Mm -hmm. that, as writers and editors and designers, that you could fit in a certain amount of story. And there was a certain narrative that I liked just going to one prison. And and I was, at first, I I didn't know that Jerry and Tyree would even be in the same same prison. Mm -hmm. That was uh, happenstance. And... Frankly, it, it it was some serendipity that made the story better because we were able to all meet together, which uh, I never expected at the beginning. And frankly, I didn't even expect when I flew up to Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't know that that was going to happen until the day before it did. So there was something about the, the convenience of it. And then, frankly, I tried to find Morty um, through lots of different means. And at that point, I, I couldn't find him. Mm-hmm. And now... Like I said, unfortunately, he's uh, back in jail on unrelated charges. So uh, now I'm trying to work through whether to continue this with speaking to Morty, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about how you uh, you lead the story. You lead with the letter um, that you write uh, to to um, to Jerry and and now I can't think of his name. Ty- Tyree. Tyree. Um, and then, so you go through that where you where you've got the letters, and you've got a little bit of an introduction. Uh, mm-hmm. You got his letter back as well, um, and then that goes. The next section is the kidnapping itself, which is so full of these amazing details and, and everything. Can you talk about why you wanted to structure it the way you did with the letters first, and then going back in time, as opposed to maybe chronologically doing it a little bit differently? Yeah, uh, the first draft of the story I wrote. Um was actually the the whole lead was about me pulling up to the prison. It was about what how frankly how beautiful the drive into the prison is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know tucked into these hills in northeast Pennsylvania. There's streams and trees, and it's, it was late May, so the the summer hadn't burned the grass yet, and I had all of these beautiful what I thought were were you know beautiful details leading up to this prison on the top of this hill. And I talked about, you know, going in the first time. And as, as often is the case, uh, my wife read the story 
called me, and the first thing she said was, when is this due again? Uh, so at that point, I knew that I had some work to do. And she was the first one to actually suggest that I lead with the letter. And as soon as, as soon as she said that, it kind of clicked into place that, and I reread the letter a couple of times and it just seemed like a natural lead at that point. Mm -hmm. It would take, you cut through a lot of the, um, work that you have to do in terms of saying what the story is going to be about. It's succinct. I didn't, I didn't literally change no words in the letter at all. Somehow subconsciously I had written a letter that, uh, you know, months prior that, or almost a year prior that had been, uh, <laughs> that had been and it turned out being a, a, a pretty good lead without <laughs> even knowing it. Um, I remember trying to write the letter when I wrote it, trying to write it very succinctly so that I would get my message across uh, and that uh, and I hoped that they would actually read it. I felt that if it was you know really long, you know, just like any of us, we kind of skim things. So I, I tried to keep it short, and that helped in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, can you uh, talk about what the feedback has been like on the story? Yeah, uh, feedback's been, uh, for the most part, really great. Uh, I've been actually um, contacted by a, a decent amount of folks who have had similar situations happen to them, which was something I, I didn't expect coming in. I, I don't know why. I guess it, I guess it makes sense in, in retrospect. The uh, the reading and writing community at large has, has been fairly open to it. Um, you know, a, a few a few minor bumps along the way. And like any comment section, um, there's a lot of people in there that said that, you know, that I was a pawn, that I was, you know, just a liberal rube that had gotten the wool pulled over their eyes. And if they'd actually read the story, they would know that there's a part in there where I, I discuss that. And I say, I have to think to myself whether or not they're being honest with me or whether they're saying what they know that I want to hear and what the parole board wants to hear. So I, I didn't think any of those... I didn't think those particular criticisms were uh, particularly valid. Right. Uh, have you heard from Jerry or Tyree about the story? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I wrote Tyree a letter when it came out. I haven't heard back from him. And uh, since since I visited the prison, Jerry's been released. And right now, I actually just got his cell number the other day. Um, it has been... <laughs> the bureaucracy of the prison system has... Uh, aligned once again to try to keep us from talking through no one's fault. Just mm -hmm. um, he's bounced through a couple different uh, parole officers. And again, that's not that's not his fault. It's just the way the system works. Uh, so all their messages, the messages have gotten left at various desks that haven't gotten pushed onto him. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just got a cell the other day, and he said he wants to talk. So I, you know, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk with him. This is not a uh, you know. My whole plan with this story was not to have this be a, a, an end mm -hmm. to our lives together. This wasn't going to be the final chapter. This is going to be something that I'm sure that Jerry, at least Jerry Tyree and I, will have a relationship, I hope, for the rest of our lives. Um, and, and, you know, that obviously was the genesis of that relationship was something bad, but you know, I, I grew to genuinely enjoy their company when I was with them, so I hope that that can continue. You know, it's interesting because I, well, I was thinking a lot of times, um, like people will write something like this, um, almost out of uh, for uh, for a sense of catharsis or, or something like that, mm -hmm. um, and and so it seems like in some ways you have gotten this this sense of peace 
maybe by writing this this the story is that accurate yeah i think so and i also getting into it i i had no idea what i would feel like i assumed that i i thought that i was past it i i knew that i was past it but i had no idea how i would react the first time i saw that and that's kind of that kind of made it a little difficult actually to write or at least going into the prison the first day because when you know that you're going to be writing about yourself, you wonder how much of what's going through your head is you as a victim of a crime reacting to this or you as someone who's eventually going to write this story somehow creating the script in your mind. It, it, it felt there, there were some parts of it that felt very much like before I went to the prison that felt like adaptation to the movie. And I didn't know if I was in my mind psyching myself up or out because I knew that it would make for a better scene. Uh, so that was kind of hard to, to work through um, mentally and emotionally before I went into the prison, because I wanted to be level-headed, and I wanted to go in and be, you know, the, the strong person that I thought that I was in this situation. But then at the same time, in the back of your mind, like, you think, wow, if I threw up right now, this would be a really great scene. So it's like a really hard thing. Uh, and I would never do anything purposely, and I wasn't doing anything purposely, but you wonder how much your subconscious is kind of perpetuating uh, what you're what, what you're thinking. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's probably a tangled a tangled uh, thing that I just went through. But right, right. No, I completely understand that as somebody who's written some memoir and and right. you're yeah, always right wondering, well, okay, yeah. if I do it this way, this will be great in a book, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, then you always end up ruining it because it's not because it would have been better off if you'd have just done it naturally. So for sure. Um, well, uh, Bradford, thanks so much for joining the podcast to, to talk about your story, my kidnappers, which you can find uh, online under the headline, what happened after my kidnapping uh, in Philadelphia magazine. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much. Matt. This has really been a lot of fun. We've been talking to Bradford Pearson, a managing editor at Southwest, the magazine. Bradford published the story, My Kidnappers, in Philadelphia Magazine in September. We've linked to it at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Now on to required reading. This one comes from Zach Lemon, a senior at Ashland University, who is, full disclosure, one of my students in the journalism program here. Zach has served as the managing editor of The Collegian, our award-winning weekly newspaper, and is now the senior reporter. At The Collegian, Zach won first place in the Ohio Newspaper Association's college newspaper competition for in-depth reporting for a watchdog piece on university administration. He recently finished an internship at the Columbus Dispatch. This week, he gives us his take on Tom Juneau's classic piece, The Rapist Says He's Sorry. 20 years ago, GQ published The Rapist Says He's Sorry, written by Tom Junod. If you were like me and were less than two years old at the time, or missed it for any other reason, it remains a must-read story. It is a story about Mitch Gaff, a serial rapist in Washington. After being convicted and serving his prison sentence, he was sent to the Special Commitment Center, a place for sexual predators who served their prison sentence but that the state is unwilling to release. Gaff, both in prison and in the center, devoted himself completely to therapy in an attempt to control and reform himself. 
Junod's reporting is masterful, giving the reader a full picture of Gav in the center. You'll see him interacting with guards and with other residents, crying in his bed as he attempts to understand the harm he's done. You'll hear about Gaff's own troubled past and his attempt to understand if he can really become a good person. Just in time to remind you of why he's there, though, Junod shows you Gaff's rape in three increasingly disturbing scenes. It is hard to do that without coming across as gratuitous and unnecessary, but Junod does it perfectly. The scenes remind you of what Gaff is capable of while seeing what he is trying to do now to change. I walked away from the story unsure of how I felt about mercy or justice or what it meant to be human. In Junod's words from the story, this is a story about how hard it is to be good, or rather, how hard it is to be good once you've been bad. The story raises questions in the reader about second chances, about who deserves them, and about who is too far gone. Even after 20 years, the story is still as relevant today as it was when it was published, and so it needs to be read. If you'd like to offer your own required reading, just email us at gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you're reading and why everyone else should read it too. Do this in about 250 words. If we like it, and I can almost promise you we will, we'll record it for a future episode. Well, that's it for this week's show. As usual, you can stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at gangrypodcast. You can also like us on Facebook. Head on over to the revamped website to check out links to newer stories that our featured guests have written since being on the show. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of 88.9 WRDL at Ashland University and is made possible by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.